Welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast, where faith and sports collide. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Welcome, everyone. This is episode number 54 of the Sports Spectrum Podcast. My name is Jason Romano. It's great to have you here today listening to the program. We appreciate you downloading, subscribing, uh, listening to the podcast wherever they're found, Apple, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, on your Android device, on your Apple device, your iPhone, your iPad, or maybe you're listening on YouTube or somewhere else. We appreciate wherever you're listening that you have tuned in to this podcast today. Our guest today, since this is being released on Veterans Day, we really wanted to bring you a special Veterans Day sort of tribute uh, type of podcast and interview. And this one is maybe the most, I've said this a few times, but every time we do an interview like this, it really blows me away. This might be the most powerful and crazy story I've ever heard of a guest here on the podcast. And his name is Chad Robichaud. He is the president and founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation. And Chad is a former Marine with eight deployments to Afghanistan. He's also married to Kathy. He's been married for 22 years. He has three children. He received the Medal of Valor. He teaches and trains Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's a third-degree black belt and a former professional MMA world champion. He was a, an MMA fighter with Strike Force and Bellator. And Chad has lived one of the most crazy lives, the most incredible journeys of anyone I've ever talked to. And, you know, he served for us. He served for our country. And I can't tell you the, the amount of times during this podcast that I would listen to his story and just think, man, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service, for being so selfless to go and sacrifice uh, and fight for our rights, fight for um, the privileges and the honors that we have in this country. So I really did appreciate Chad for that, but his story is is just a very powerful story, a journey through PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and his time in Afghanistan, a journey through a broken marriage, a journey through trying to find a faith that he didn't think existed in Jesus Christ, and then taking that struggle, that that journey, the things that he's seen and learned, and trying to help others. 20 people die every day of suicide, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And Chad has made it his life to try and combat this, to bring awareness to this and treat and help and serve and give back to people who are going through the difficulties of PTSD. So take a listen here. I think you'll walk away just being more impressed than ever with what our military men and women go through uh, as they sacrifice and fight for, for us and our freedoms. So here he is, episode number 54. This is the author of An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle, Eight Deployments to Afghanistan, former Marine Chad Robichaux. Chad, welcome to the Sports Spectrum Podcast. How are you? Awesome. Thanks for having me on. It is good to, to talk to you. Great to have you here. And listen, your story is just crazy. It is. It's a whirlwind uh, but I want to start specifically with the book that I mentioned, An Unfair Advantage. A lot of what we talk about today and the experiences you've had are detailed in this book. So what was the hardest part in, in writing this type of book and being so open and transparent? Uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's so many aspects of, of, of my life that has, have been challenging and, and putting them on paper, you know, brings back you sitting down, usually when you're writing, isolate it and, uh, you're just really in deep thought. And so putting them on paper, it was, was just at times very challenging. I think, um, I think w one of the most challenging parts was, a was the final chapter, um, you know, uh, courage, uh, courage beyond fear. Um, because, uh, it was, you know, really ca capturing the moment to where the wheels really flew off for me, you know, uh, up until that point, I think I was able to kind of grit through some of my struggles in Afghanistan and, uh, and just persevere. But, in a, in a moment, it all came off, and, and that was when, uh, you know, I really allowed fear and uh, doubt to enter my, my heart and mind, and and uh, it really was a culmination of trying to do it on my own without God in this, you know, chaotic situation I was in, and and I th so I think actually putting the pen to paper on that, it just brought a tremendous amount of emotion to me, and, and it actually took me, it took me the longest to get through that chapter. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because I, I just finished writing my first book as well. It's a very real sort of transparent look at a broken relationship with my father. It's on forgiveness. And I can relate in the sense that it was 
hard. But I also know that it was therapeutic for me when I started writing these things down, these memories, these moments that in many ways I hadn't thought about in a long time. Was that the case yeah. for you? Was that the experience for you? Yeah, it was. And, and you know, and, and the more you, you, you know, you tend to forget things or maybe you don't forget them. You just kind of casually them away somewhere in the back of your mind. And, oh, yeah. uh, and, and so the more I was writing and the more I spent time, uh, just really alone digging into these, uh, these stories of, you know, where I ended up now, the more things would resurface from the past. And I remember particularly talking about, uh, in, in that chapter, writing about, um, when I would leave for these operations and I would write, uh, notes, usually like sticky notes for my, one for my wife, you know, telling her that, you know, that I love her and that, um, and that, you know, I'm okay with her, you know, moving on, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, uh, and then my son, you know, Hunter telling him, Hey, I'm, I'm gone now. You're, you're going to have to be the man of the house and take care of your brother and sister and your mom, like lighting those notes and leave them in the lid of my suitcase where knowing my personal effects would get home, knowing they would find them. And then, and then actually leaving, believing that, you know, this very well uh, may end up receiving those notes. And then I come home and not, I'll come home, come back to, you know, where I was living and take those notes and throw them away so no one find them and, and do it again, you know, a few days later. I remember what I had forgot about that. And, uh, and I started writing about that and it just, it really, uh, it really impacted me. Yeah. The book's called, I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh, Chad. The book is called an unfair advantage victory in the midst of battle. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and the, the story and the life that you've lived, which has been just a whirlwind, a crazy life, uh, and so many good and, and a lot of challenging ways. And you write about that in the book, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. I want to talk about the sports side of your life a little bit, Chad, and what sports look like for you as a young person growing up. Where was sports in your life as a kid? Well, I grew up in South Louisiana and in, in, uh, in a place called uh, Raceland in Homa, Thibodeau area of Louisiana. So really not too many people know where that's at. It's, it's south of New Orleans. and So sports uh, outside of uh, football. In baseball, there wasn't really much to it, and and uh, I was always just, I was a small guy now, five foot five foot four, five foot three. So uh, I was always a small kid, and uh, my grandmother, um, because I grew up in a very dysfunctional home, mm. my grandmother uh, really wanted to get me involved in something, and so she took me to a martial arts school, and uh, they they had a couple of martial arts at this place. They had karate, judo, and traditional jiu-jitsu. And actually, I, I, I did. I ended up going there and just falling in love with the instructor there. Um, probably served sort of a father figure uh, to me. So I really engaged in uh, in those in those martial arts from an early age. And um, so did did those martial arts up until um, I was 17 years old and left for the Marine Corps. And, so uh, I, go ahead. I, so I, for for me, that was my sports were. You know, not really community sports or, or scholastic sports, but focused on martial arts uh, and gra grappling style martial arts. Mm. So you mentioned dysfunctional family. Um, as much as you would care to share, what did that look like? What was the family dynamic look like as a kid growing up? Well, my, my father was, you know, I was a Marine. My father was a Marine. My, my, actually, my son is a Marine Corps Reservist right now. So it's three generations of Marines in my family. Mm -hmm. My father, um, when he joined the Marine Corps, he... He actually joined during Vietnam and, uh, and went to Vietnam. And, and when he came home, he struggled with a lot of things that, that I struggle with. And many of our warriors struggle with coming home from combat. And so there's a lot of alcohol, um, and, and a tremendous amount of, of physical abuse with, uh, myself and my older brother, who's a year older than me. And so, uh, you know, when you, when you, uh, growing up in a home like that, um, with physical abuse, you know, siblings get really close, especially you know, my brother's a year older. And, um, when I was 14 and he was 15, he was, he was actually shot and killed. And, uh, so that, mm. that was, um, you know, really, uh, hard time for me in my life. And, and, uh, he was the closest person to me. We had, we had always talked about joining the military together, uh, kind of escaped that lifestyle. And so that even when he, when he was killed, I, uh, I continued on that path to, um, try to find a way to join the military. And uh, I think what kept me probably out of trouble because at that point in my life, I, I put from about 15 years old till I joined the Marine Corps, I pretty much was was on my own. And um, and I think what kept me out of trouble was my focus in in martial arts and in training. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you process that? You know, as a teenager, and I have two brothers. I'm the oldest, but I have two younger brothers, and I'm trying to imagine 
going through something like that. You know, we grew up in a broken home too, but nothing like what you just described. I'm just trying to understand and process that from a 14 year old perspective. How did you do that? How did you, were you, I know you kind of said martial arts helped. You didn't. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I did process it. I think I, 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 I didn't speak to anyone. Uh, I, I would, uh, I really, I was already running and, uh, and swimming. I always loved the water. So I just became, um, I didn't do it competitively. I had, I'd swam a few times, uh, a few years competitively, but I wasn't really big into it. I just enjoyed swimming and running and I knew I wanted to go in some type of special operations. So it really, I think the isolation of it gave me the focus to just do that. And, um, and so instead of going out and no, I really just kind of had a few friends, but for the most part, I isolated and focused on preparing myself in the military. And, um, and I never dealt with it. Yeah. Was there, was there any faith in your life as a kid? Like was church or anything like that even in the yeah. picture? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up, um, my family's very Southern Louisiana, Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very traditional. Uh, so, uh, you know, having a understanding, a personal relationship with God and, uh, because of the type of Catholicism that I was, I mean, it was just going to church on Sundays and, you know, stand, kneel, sit, like that type of thing. So sure. I really didn't understand any of that. And, but there was a family that I was really close to and they were a, a really strong Christian family. I always looked up to this family because they were just, you know, a big family and, and always, you know, engaged. They just seemed happy and their family seemed whole. And so I really, uh, they really wrapped their arms around me after m- my brother was killed and they took me to a, to a church, um, one Sunday and, and I remember that, you know, the pastor's giving a message and it's one of those where you just feel like he's talking right to you. Of course. And, and at the, at the very end of the, you know, it, when you're, when you have the emptiness inside of you, every word's going to stick, you know, it's a, uh, and, and that's, I remember him giving the altar call, like an altar call at the end. And, and, uh, and I ran up there and, you know, just was crying and, and I surrendered my life to Christ. And, but the, the problem with that decision, I believe it was a very authentic decision for me at that time. There was absolutely no, discipleship and the follow through because I wasn't living where this place was. And so there was nothing to guide me in, uh, and how to live that decision out. And, um, and so the, the world really just ate me up spiritually after that. So you decide to join the military and you, you mentioned your dad being in the Marines as well. Is that where the decision came from to go into the military? What did it stem from, you know, what happened with your brother? Where did that decision ultimately come from? So when my, when my brother had, had died, my father left, um, because, you know, he didn't want to deal with, with, uh, his, his wife, you know, with my brother's mother, we had different mothers right. and, and so he left the country. So, uh, I was on my own and I, and I was trying to go to high school and work at the same time I was, I was, I was roofing. So, so mm-hmm. it was, it was a very, very difficult time for me, but I went to, uh, I went to a Marine Corps recruiter and I told him my story and what I was facing. And this man named Staff Sergeant Brown was a Marine Corps recruiter. And he actually uh, just had a deep compassion for what I was going through. And he um, he helped me write a letter to headquarters of Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps actually recruited me in with no high school diploma. Wow. I was 17 years old. And uh, I had to get my mom to sign. I went live with my mother, but she she had no problem signing. And so I was 17 years old. And I had, a, I had to get a high school diploma within the first year of the Marine Corps. And I did in, in 29 Palms, California. After graduated boot camp, what's time like in the Marine Corps as a as a young teenager? I know there was a time when you left and kind of went into uh, law enforcement, which we'll talk about in a moment. But what is time like early uh, as you join the Marines? Well, I mean, it was for me. It was a, it was truly like I felt like it was a brand new chance at life. I was I think I had I was I think I was very mature probably because of the way I grew up. So I definitely I wasn't the kid that's like oh, I'm away from home. I could have fun and party and do all these things. I was like. I recognized an opportunity um, at that young age and said, you know, this is a second chance at life for me. And so I really embraced it. I, I took it very seriously. Um, I went in to do something and, uh, and I went after it. I want to be a reconnaissance Marine. And so uh, despite the challenges of doing that, and when I say challenges, I don't mean physically, it was just at the time it was very difficult to get in. So I had to, even though I was passing the indoctrination, I had to try out several times. And, uh, but within the first year, you know, I, uh, made it in and, and, uh, started my training. Essentially my first, my first, uh, four years in the Marine Corps were, uh, professionally was becoming a reconnaissance Marine, doing all the training, um, going through my first platoon, uh, in that job. And, and, uh, but also I had met my wife, Kathy, uh, 
and she, we met when she were I was 18 and she was 17 and we a year later we got married and we had our first son uh, Hunter right on the Marine Corps base in 29 Palms and so wow. my life really changed uh, at that time 1997 was what after the end of my first four years enlistment there wasn't any wars or anything going on yeah. and so uh you know it wasn't so we just decided to switch to the Marine Corps reserves and uh, go to college and maybe come back in as a, as an officer. That was kind of the the plan that we had, and uh, although I figured out really quickly that if I was going to go to college with a wife and a child, that I had to work, and uh, so I uh, I ended up going to work um, for the the St. Charles Sheriff's Department in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. We're going to talk a lot about your marriage and and kind of how that dynamic played out in a little bit. But you're 18 or 19 years old, and you're married, and you have a kid, and you experience more in life from maybe the age of 14 to 20 than most people maybe do in their entire lives. What is that like for you? Just, you must've had to grow up really fast. Yeah, I think, I think I grew up fast, even younger than that. You know, I just, it was just um, the dynamics of my family. And sometimes I look back at my childhood and compare it to my children's. And I think, well, was I, was I blessed or cursed for this? Uh, you know, there's some, <laughs> you know, cause yeah. you know, as a parent, as a parent now, you, you provide all these, you know, everything you possibly can, so your kids won't have to experience those same things. Of course. And in some in some aspects, you're like, did we just rob them of some really great life skills and lessons? But uh, you know, I think that's the right thing to do as as parents. But you know, I, it certainly uh, made me grow up fast, and uh, and uh, so I was, a, you know, probably very mature. You know, twenty year twenty year old. I mean, I was a, you know, twenty years old. I was a I was a corporal as a team leader in, in Marine Reconnaissance team. So yeah, that's, and you're that's a dad, a, and you're a husband. I mean, that's a lot to to deal with at 20 years old. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let me. I'll do a reset here. We're talking to Chad Robus show here on the Sports Spectrum podcast, and just the story gets even crazier as we keep talking here, Chad. And um, part of your journey is featured over at imsecond.com, which is where I saw a little bit about your story. Wonderful video. They do such great work over there. And I, I really they think they, they capture the essence of the story that you're trying to tell. And you tell a story during your time in, in, in law enforcement, and it's quoted as you killed me in the video. And you write about it in chapter six of your new book, An Unfair Advantage. Can you take us back? Because you said you kind of left the military, uh, not the military, but the, uh, the Marines and kind of got into law enforcement a little bit. Take us back to that time and set the scene and share with our listeners what exactly happened. It was a real busy time in my life. I, I was actually in the Marine Corps Reserves at 3rd Force Recon in Mobile, Alabama, and I'm a police officer in New Orleans at the same time. And there wasn't a day off because when I wasn't at the department, I was with the Marine Corps uh, working. So, uh, you know, I, I was a young patrol officer and, and um, I I heard a call come across the radio. I was, I was actually meeting with my wife to eat and I heard a call come across the radio from um, my buddy Steve, who's another, who's a Marine as well, and he actually was one of my training officers. So I knew him, really respected him, and knew he was like just a super composed, like just kind of super cop guy. And I would really looked up to him, and but I could hear in his voice like something was wrong. And uh, and just as he, you know, gave his location and started talking about what he was dealing with, the radio um, system started having problems and cutting out, which is. You know, kind of Murphy's Law type thing, and, right. and uh, so so uh, I just remember I just know, knew I needed to get to him. So I'm like driving and rushing with my lights and my sirens on, trying to get trying to get to him. And and as I pulled up to the house where he was, he was on an elevated the porch. The house was elevated, and he was on a porch that was elevated with this lady arguing, uh, kind of frantic argument. And there was about thirty uh, people out in front, um, kind of spectating. And uh, got through the people, and I got on the porch, and he's telling me, "Hey, get this lady out of here. Uh, her husband's inside, and he just barricaded himself in the back, and I think he has a gun." And uh, so um, he goes to the window of where the guy, uh, he thought the guy barricaded himself, the window of the bedroom, which would have been between. So he got to put himself between him and the crowd and the people, so the guy couldn't shoot out the window. And uh, and I'm in the front doorway of the house, and I start arguing with this lady who's the wife, and and uh, I ended up. You know, she wasn't listening, so I had actually ended up throwing her over the rail of mm. this elevated porch to get her, because she wouldn't listen. And now we got a guy with a gun in there. So, um, as I get in the doorway, 
I could see um, Catacorner across in the hallway. Uh, the individual, his name was his name was Russell. He's uh, by the way, he's you know I'm a little guy, and you know the guy's six foot three, two hundred and two hundred and sixty sixty three pounds. It's a big he's guy, a giant man. Yeah, and I, and so I uh, I could see him kind of Catacorner. He's in this hallway, and there's a mirror, and he's got a rifle. And he's manipulating the chamber, which I would know as press checking to make sure his, he has ammunition in, in the chamber. Mm-hmm. And I just start, you know, yelling at him, you know, don't come out, put your gun down, um, you know, put your gun down and come out and let's talk about, talk, you know, let's talk. And he's telling us, you need to leave. I want to see my wife. You need to leave. And we're saying, hey, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to leave. We're not going anywhere. So I'm just talking to him like a policeman. And then he, when he came out around the corner, he had the rifle kind of in a, in a weird fashion. He had it pointed at me, but it wasn't like in his shoulder, like if you were shooting a rifle, he had it over his shoulder, but his finger was next to the trigger. He's pointing at me. And I, I knew, uh, at that time I had probably, you know, that definitely had a, the authority for lethal force to be able to shoot him. And if you had asked me that morning, if someone had pointed a gun at me, you know, I would have said yes. Right. But here I am like in this guy's home, you know, his kids toys are on the floor, his family pictures, where his wife is screaming outside, his kids are outside, and I just felt like I still had control of the situation. So, you know, I just start yelling at him now. I'm not like a policeman. I'm yelling at him like, "I'm gonna kill you. Put down your gun. I'm gonna kill you." And he's telling me to put down my gun, and uh, and I, I just really felt like I could disarm him. And so I ran, I ran towards him, and I grabbed the barrel of his gun and I pushed it away from me. And when I did, I kicked him in in the groin, <clears throat> not to not like a football kick, but like a push right. kick. And, uh, you know, I was already – by that time, I was already in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I was training Muay Thai. I was I was really confident in my, you know, hand-to-hand fighting abilities. And so I, I when I kicked him and went to pull the gun away, um, you know, the, it wasn't going anywhere. He had a really good grip on it. And the, I had my arm tucked in with my pistol to protect my pistol. And the second time I kicked him, my arm must have came away from my body, and he grabbed my arm. And so now i got this giant man, and we're fighting over two two guns. And, uh, you know, right at that moment, I just knew the, you know, the situation was, uh, he wasn't going to back down and he wasn't ever going to back down at that moment. I was just convinced in my mind right. and I just, uh, rolled my wrist over his to break his grip. And I shot six times, shot bow, 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 bow. And my partner shot over my shoulder. I didn't even know he was behind me, but, uh, I could hear, I didn't hear like, like loud explosions. I could just hear his gun kind of functioning. Like the small pops, but I could hear his gun actually functioning, hmm. and I just I just knew it was him, even though I didn't see him. And uh, we shot twelve times. Uh, happened really fast. Uh, we hit him eleven times, and he turned and he hit land on his knees, and he just looked right back at me and he said, "He said you killed me," and uh, and I I tackled him and pulled the rifle out from under him, and and as I was handcuffing him, I I think one of his hands must have been in front of his body because his wrist um, was just like. A noodle blew out one of his whole wrists, and uh, so because of that, I just had blood. Every, blood was everywhere, all over me. I had short sleeves on, and I remember hearing him like breathe out his last breath. And uh, all the seems like when that right when that happened, all the police came. There was probably like fifty police and f- firefighters and or, or EMS. Everyone got there at the same time, and and uh, you know we, my partner and I, got separated, and we were you know later on you know at home, you know. T- Tell my wife, no one had called my wife uh, from the department. So tell my wife what happened, and it was just a. Uh, it was, ended up being a uh, going to a grand jury uh, for a second degree murder indictment, mm-hmm. and uh, which was a uh, you know, we was overturned to um, to be a justified shooting. And my my partner Steve and I got the state. We got awarded by the state the Medal of Valor. Um, but uh, wow. you know, it was. I I remember. Um, you know what I remember most about that incident of anything else is, is uh his wife just screaming, 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 uh, when the shots went off. I just remember her screaming, and trying to get to me, and seeing people holding her back. And I actually wanted to go to her, you know, because for some reason I wanted to go to her. But but uh, you know, she was you know thinking about her kids out there, and you know, and and her having to witness that. It was, a, it was just a terrible thing. Did you ever talk to her after? Or have you seen her or had any communication with her since since that incident with the wife? I never did. I never yeah. did. There was, a, there was a lawsuit. Um, she filed a lawsuit, which was right. uh, dismissed. And um, and never never seen from her, never heard how the kids, her kid, kids are doing anything like that. Yeah. 
Chad, there's so much here. And as you're training to become a police officer, a member of law enforcement, this can't be something that you're told is going to happen on a regular basis. It's got to be rare and uncommon, right? You know, the, the police shootings are, are rare. You know, most police officers you know, will, you know, go their whole, whole lives without ever pulling their gun out. And I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the search, you know, every situation is different. For me, the circumstances of this just revolved around, you know, the family being, the family being there and having to witness that. And, right. you know, and, and the guys, this isn't a combat zone. This is the guy's, this was the guy's home. Uh, you know, again, family pictures on the wall, toys on the floor. Um, they just, they were, the dinner was still out from them having dinner and they got an argument and he had too much to drink and, and, uh, he was mad and wanted to get to his wife and he just wouldn't back down. Yeah. And, uh, so this was just a, you know, a real tragedy. I was, you know, a lot of my frustration and anger was just being really angry at him for making us do that, you know? Um, Absolutely. It, you know, I was, yeah. So as a, you know, it, again, you know, it's just a really tragic thing and, and being as young as I was and, and at that time, no one really understood how to. I mean, we've come a long way uh, understanding, you know, people people being involved in things like that. That, but at that time, I got my the limit of my counseling was to be seen by a psychologist and take a test to make sure I was qualified, fit for duty to get back to work. You know, that that probably made me more crazy than anything else. Take this test and yeah. then uh, and back to work. You know, it's a uh, how are you able to go back to work? Like just going back to like, what is that doing to your psyche? There, you know, are you thinking like every single incident that's a call could end up in something like this? Sure, because you, you, I mean, that was, by, you know, I've been in a tremendous amount of a uh, type, you know, traumatic incidents since then. But uh, yeah. that being my first like incident like that, I think what what it gives you is a really a very real perspective of how fast things could happen. You know, in one minute I'm sitting down eating dinner with my wife, and the next minute, you know, I'm, I'm in this situation, yeah. and uh, in 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 a moment, you know, being a police officer, just being in, in life, you pull up at the gas station, and you know. So you just, and the more you go through experiences like this in your life, and this is where I think a lot of combat vets and, uh, and policemen and firefighters, you know, experience uh, a lot of stress in their life is because they know at any moment in, in time, uh, you could go from a moment of joy and happiness and peace and safety to you know, a complete moment of despair. Things happen so quickly and spin out of control so quickly. And when, when you start realizing that, you know, your world becomes a, a very unstable place, um, yeah. especially in the absence of God in your life. Chad, take us through when you, when you were deployed in Afghanistan and the moments from being in law enforcement to getting deployed in Afghanistan, fill in the blanks there, fill in the, the, the color, color it in for us and paint the picture of what's taking place before you end up getting deployed to Afghanistan. Well, I mean, you know, nine eleven. I mean, I, you know, I was, I wasn't, I was in the reserves. I was a, you know, force recon marine in the reserve unit. When, when I seen those planes on television flying into World Trade Center buildings, I absolutely knew, you know, where I, I knew like my life will never be the same. Like we're, I am going to go and be part of this. Really? Some way, somehow I'm going to go be part of this. And you just and, knew. And there was, no, yeah. I mean, I think everybody in the military not only knew. Uh, I think everyone in the military at the time were like, I mean, no one was going to our reserve unit like. Hey, you know, oh my gosh, are we going to war? Everyone was like, "Hey, what's up, sir? Like, when are we going? Like, we we got to we got to be part of this. We got to make this right." That was the mentality of the entire military at that time, hmm. and uh, and uh, you know, I remember the guys in my unit were like just chomping at a bit to go, and so I immediately after nine eleven went um, within I think a week and a half, I resigned from the department and was on active duty status at my unit, and uh, but it wouldn't be until. 2003 before I get to deploy and uh, I tried out for a, a JSOC task force uh, which is a very rare and unique opportunity um, uh, to deploy in an unconventional way um, which you read my book so you probably read into some of the you know kind of unconventional type of things I was doing for sure and uh, and so you know I got accepted on this task force and uh, got exactly what I asked for uh, um, I did over the you know period of the next till 2003 2007 I did eight, eight deployments um, uh, in support of uh, you know, the, the Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, and, and um, you know, if, if you'd asked me when I went, you know, if I was prepared, I, I felt I was extremely prepared. I had life experience. I knew my job very well. I was really, really trained to do my job. I was, you know, physically fit. Uh, I felt mentally sharp. I knew my knew everything about what I was going there to do. And uh, but you know, we. We teach this now with our warriors through what, what to do at our foundation. 
you know, being prepared is, is being prepared in all three aspects, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And if you'd asked me if I was a Christian, uh, I would have probably said yes, because yeah. it was stamped, stamped on my dog tags, but I had <laughs> right. no idea, no idea what that meant in the scope of, uh, being in a, in a spiritual battle and, and, you know, people could say whatever they want, but being in a place like Afghanistan, Iraq, and even anywhere in this world, but particularly places like that, you're in a spiritual battle. I mean, there's a, the sheer presence of evil in those places. And, uh, and my heart, uh, was, was not prepared for it because I, I, I felt like what I knew about Christianity were, uh, was something that didn't have a place in that job. I thought Christian men were weak. And I went to, I took my, I went to church. I took my wife and kids to church on, on Sundays. But the truth is I took them to church because, you know, more manipulating them, dragging them to church. And, uh, yeah. you know, my wife's going to be a godly woman and virtuous woman and my kids are going to get Sunday school, but, but I'm not going to, you know, really be engaged. And so I actually, uh, didn't really, grasp what being a man of God was. And so I thought it had no place there. And I felt like I had to choose between being a, being this masculine warrior and being a godly person. And, uh, and obviously being a young, young warrior, excited to go out and do his job. I, I chose the latter. I thought, I thought I could be a warrior now and I could do this in a religious thing later. And, uh, you know, nothing could have been further from the truth because, um, that left a really big gaping hole inside my heart that I filled with over time with, hate and rage and anger and bitterness and and uh, it worked really well for me in, in Afghanistan you know I think everyone that I worked with was probably the same way just really driven and intense and and uh, a real hatred towards towards uh, Taliban but when um, when I would come home you know I couldn't flip that switch and turn it off that intensity it made me that felt helped me there didn't have a place in my home and uh, you know my wife and children quickly became scared of me everybody's on pins and needles my home wasn't really a happy place for us all to be and it was this uh you know a very a very sad time because you know my my remember my kids would just be so excited for me to come home and uh but you know, i would i would end up ruining it somehow within days of being home yeah. my daughter was uh you know one time really excited i was gonna be home for a birthday party and and um and so she actually shifted her party for me to get back to afghanistan and, and she's just, like super opinionated so she didn't like the icing on her cake I remember taking my little girl's like birthday cake and and grabbing it, just sticking my hand right in the middle of it, and grabbing it, and throwing it against the wall, and just destroying my little girl's birthday. Wow! And uh, you know, I was just out of control, and I knew it. I knew I was out of control at the time, but like it was like when the ball would start getting rolling. If I would admit that I was wrong, then it would be like just a uh, like me relinquishing my pride. So I would just justify every childish behavior. With, uh, you know, everyone else is an idiot, you know, kind right. of mentality. And that, that was how I behaved all the time. And, and the more I recognized it, the more I withdrew and kind of put a wall between me and my family and, and, uh, and just got distanced myself from them. And, and the more I'd just want to be in Afghanistan because it was easy, easier. I loved my job and it was easy when I was there. Let me ask you, there's a bunch to unpack on that, a bunch to unpack. And we're going to talk about your marriage and being a dad in a little bit. Um, but I want to go back to Afghanistan and, when you're deployed there, you mentioned you could just sense evil, you know, that it was pure evil when you were there, darkness, if you will. Take us inside some of the things that you saw uh, and maybe share a story or two that might stand out on just what it was like to be in the midst of pure evil. Well, the culture was evil. And, you know, I, I didn't I didn't um, live on a base like I didn't live like on, on a base and then get to go out every once in a while. I lived because of my job. I lived at the community. So I lived with. I lived with, uh, you know, all the, when I say local nationals, all the Afghan people, yeah. um, you know, I'd play soccer with their kids and have family meals with them and, and got to know them. And I hear the stories about what the, the Taliban had done to them, the, the rape and to the, uh, of the little girls and little boys and, mm. and the physical abuse to, to the women and the way they were treated. And it's just like, you start hearing the firsthand stories of what these people had endured and, and their fear of what they would endure if U.S. forces left. You know, um, I think I, I opened the chapter with talking about the, the 2004 elections and me being there sitting in a party, a giant party in the living room and watching these people. Um, they were so, they were glued to TV, shoulder, shoulder, food everywhere. Like they were just having this giant, like Super Bowl type party, uh, waiting to see who was going to win the election because they were so scared that if John Kerry won, U.S. troops would get pulled out and, mm. uh, they would have to face the Taliban. And when they won, they, I mean, when, when Bush, they announced that Bush was the, the president 
um, of the United States. Again, he, man, they were just jumping for joy. And I, I, I wanted to know why, you know, like wh why they cared so much. And, uh, you know, one of my buddies, uh, take one of my buddies, my Afghan buddies took me out and he started showing me kind of some of the history. And he took me to, to this apartment building where it was just all shot up where the Taliban would go in and the chase these women up when they'd jump off the roof to not get raped by the Taliban. And they'd, you know, they, they would just get, you know, these women would get raped and beaten and punished for breaking these kind of religious Taliban rules and, and then uh, another part I talk about, I talk about in the chapter one of the book is the killing pool, uh, the Olympic pool that the Russians built in the, the kind of north side of the city of Kabul or where uh, they would commit, you know, executions where they'd line people up and shoot people uh, in lines in, in the pool. And you could just, I remember going to see and actually pulling out my uh, little Leatherman tool and pulling pieces of bullets out the wall where you could just see lines of bullets where Gosh. they would commit these mass executions and where they'd hang people off the high dive tower and, and just throw them, you know, throw ladies off like bags of garbage just to the bottom of the pool and, and uh, the empty pool and, and killing them. And so I think a lot of hatred built in my heart from seeing these things firsthand. And, um, you know, outside of just regular combat, it was, it was, and, you know, I, I never, it was, it was, um, it was the culture and we were one I think one incident I'll share with you is when you know another chapter in the book the girl on chicken street and, and uh we were just in, in town uh doing some shopping it was a normal normal day when I say normal day we you know we would go in and, and buy groceries because we lived in town and yeah. we were actually buying groceries and some dvds and there was this little girl and her sister we'd always see there and the reason we recognized her because uh every now and then you'll see these afghan kids with these really blue eyes like kind of crazy blue eyes and and there was this little girl about nine years old who always was, she'd selling, um, newspapers and maps. And she had these really crazy blue eyes and her sister and her were, were there. And, uh, my buddy Bank and I, Bank's his nickname. We, we went, we went in and we stopped and, uh, bought some, bought a newspaper from her. Bank paid her extra for extra money just to be a cool guy and, and, uh, help them out and these cool street kids. And while we're inside, he bought, we bought, uh, we bought some things and he bought, uh, actually the two girls. Pepsi's and mm -hmm. uh you know and and so as we walked out he remember him giving another Pepsi and we were probably a block a block away and uh we just kind of hear and feel at the same time the concussion of that thud of an explosion just you know it's kind of that thud you know both of us knew right away what it was and and uh look back and seeing people running and some dust in the air it's real dusty there and, and um we we left. We didn't go and check. I mean, that wasn't what we were there for. So we we left the area, and uh, later on we found out that it was it, this has happened right in front of that store where we had seen it happen right in the area. But there was this Chechen suicide bomber had several hand grenades strapped to him, uh, his chest, uh, daisy chained together, and and uh, walked up to some some ANA Afghan National Army guards and uh, and blew himself up. And he actually didn't kill any of the soldiers, but. He killed two children. One of them was the was the little girl, and um, oh. and it was just uh, you know, it, those those kind of things you you see them and and uh, you know these these aren't this isn't you know soldier versus a marine versus Taliban. This is you know innocent life that has you know you know these girls are out there trying to survive, and um, you know just this this evil and uh, recklessness for human life. It, it it's tough to. Be and need to look at U.S. troops right now. That's one of the things they're facing. This is a very unconventional battle, and it's very tough to fight an enemy who's not willing to play by you know. There's no rules of warfare, but when you when you not only bypass rule you know rules of human decency, but where you have no concern about human life and these cho people like these children, it really it really could harden your heart, and and it, it, it certainly did for me. Wow. You know, and it makes you ask, you know. As someone who's already struggling with, you know, faith and belief, you ask that question that you've seen so many people ask before. You know, if if there was a God, there's a loving God, why would He allow things like this to happen in in, in, the, in the world? And yeah. uh, you know, and that that's certainly where I was at the time with my faith. And then you were removed from your task force. Tell us how that came about. Well, I mean, uh, over time, uh, I started having these this anger that I had. It started giving me a it started uh, migrating into these physiological symptoms. I'd feel my, I, I get really, would get really just stressed out to put it bluntly. And, uh, and 
after that stress would start to subside, I'd start having these um, feelings of uh, physiological feelings like my arms would go numb, my face would go numb, my throat would feel like it was swelling shut, and uh, and um, I feel like I had a thousand pounds on my chest, and my heart was—I could feel my heart beating, like in my in, through through the veins. I could feel my my blood pressure, and um, you know I, I knew it was probably anxiety, but I didn't want to admit it, so I would uh, try to dismiss it, um, and then it started getting worse. And, uh, but I knew if I told anyone that I worked with, I would really be viewed as weak. So I didn't say anything. Right. I just kind of pushed it down and kept trying to do my job. And, and the, the more I tried to push it down, the worse the symptoms got. I, I actually, uh, started kind of almost having like outer body kind of feeling, like out of body experience type feelings and, and, uh, very difficult time sleeping. And, uh, and then I started having lapses of memory where I couldn't remember certain things really foggy. And, um, and, uh, I was brought, uh, we had some, several incidents happen that were very bad. We lost some, some guys, um, and I was brought home and, um, and I went back into a very bad situation knowing it was going to be a bad situation. And, uh, and there was a lot of, uh, anxiety in doing that and doing this, this next mission and, and, uh, really imminent sense of doom. And I think it was maybe more than I was able to bear because, uh, I couldn't remember uh, about a two week period. And uh, that was the point that I really recognized that I didn't only put myself in danger, but I, put, I was putting other people in danger as well. And so I had to say something. And um, and I was brought home and um, and uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and uh, you know, uh, we go, we could do a whole another segment on the word disordered and, uh, right. and and my views on that. But uh, but that was that was the diagnosis and uh, and uh, which followed you know pills and medication and which I didn't like. I didn't like the counseling. I didn't like the pills. And that was when, um, you know, my wife and my counselor were really encouraged me to, I'd, I was already fighting professionally on the side uh, in mixed martial arts and already doing, you know, lots of jujitsu. And they encouraged me to do that. But literally the way I felt physically, like if I did anything physical, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack and die. But the panic attacks were, were very severe. And on top of the panic attacks, it was extreme amount of depression because I felt like I'd failed. So it was a lot of shame, uh, a lot, a lot of shame. I've really felt like I, you know, let my, my team down. And um, so I'm struggling with all these things, and and um, my I'm being encouraged to do jujitsu, and and so I finally said, okay, I'm going to get out there and get on those mats. And when I got on those wrestling mats for the first time, I felt like I found a cure. I felt like, uh, you know, it's if I can stay in these mats 24/7, then <laughs> everything will be okay. <laughs> and that that's that's what I felt like. And you know, obviously I love jujitsu. I still do it to this day. And and um, but I do think you could take something good for you, like a medicine, and you could abuse it. And that's exactly what I did with the jiu-jitsu. Uh, instead of getting well and doing the hard things to get pull my life back together and, and uh, get back on track, I, I I substituted healing for something that made me feel good, just like alcohol or drugs. That's what jiu-jitsu was for me at that time in my life. When you're fighting in MMA, you know, and there's a time when you're competing in Strike Force and Bellator and you're an 18, 18 and 2 pro record, is that time of fighting happening before the before sort of Jesus comes into your life or is that after it's it's all in the midst of it you know I, I, I fought before Afghanistan I fought between uh I didn't even want to fight between deployments which was crazy to do but um you know the the highlight of you know me fighting in these bigger shows and bigger venues was that was when I was uh that was after Afghanistan that was the the success that I had and the kind of pinnacle of my success in MMA was was at the at the crash in my life I mean, so it was, it was really, you know, in addition to fighting, I opened a school and we had almost a thousand students. So it was a, a very successful school. Um, so I was successful as a, with a business and I was also successful, uh, you know, fighting. And so on the outside, anyone looking from the outside in would, it looked like we had me and my wife, you know, we had it all together. We had, we were making a you know, great income. Yeah. We were getting a lot of attention and, um, you know, from fighting and, and so it looked, it looked like a, nothing was wrong, but you know, there were still panic attacks. My, there was still, um, you know, all this, you know, fighting in my, in my home and, and the stress in my home and my, our marriage was completely dead. Um, you know, many nights I'd sleep at a friend's house or in the gym or in another bedroom, or even when I was in my own bed, it was, you know, I always say the loneliest place I've ever been is in my own bed with my wife's back, you know, turned to me, yeah. not Afghanistan or anything. I mean, we were just in this dead marriage and, and, um, you know, it, it didn't take long for me to step out of our marriage with, with the attention from competing and, 
and uh, girls being around take long for me to step out uh, in, uh, into a fair. So how bad is it getting? But you're 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 stepping out of your marriage. You're you've experienced everything we've just talked about, and uh, life is not working. Apparently, you know, at least what, from what it sounds like. So how bad how bad did it get? How low was was the lowest point for you? Well, I, you know, I really didn't care. Like, uh, I mean, I, I didn't care who I hurt. That was very completely, completely self-driven. I was completely selfish, and and uh, and I and I really systematically surrounded myself with, you know, a bunch of people that told me what I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. You know, it was really danger of of success in any part of life when, when you start having the ability to do that. And uh, so I had no accountability, and so you know, I was really like a train without brakes, you know, heading for something to crash into, and uh, it didn't take long. And and uh, you know, my wife and I sat our kids down, and we said we we're gonna divorce and everything was going to be better you know and it wasn't going to be better it was actually you know i mean we knew it was going to be worse and sold our home and moved in two separate apartments and filed for divorce and, and uh my wife and i we just had two completely different reactions uh my wife who uh you know she went into a a church uh not on sundays like every day and she started praying for me um and not she said she didn't know how to pray for me because she was so angry but she just started praying, uh, God, let me, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love him the way you love him. And let me forgive him the way you forgave him. And so she was, uh, you know, she was fighting for me when I, when I had given up and, and on, on us. And, um, you know, meanwhile, I'm in this apartment by myself and it took a, you know, the strike force fight was actually while we were separated in that apartment. And, um, and so I think training for that fight, let me get few past the first two months. And then the third month was, was after that fight. And after that fight was over, um, you know, I, I won that fight and was excited, but the excitement faded quick because, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, alone in this apartment and I just started isolating myself. And, uh, I think that time alone gave me the chance to really reflect on the damage I caused before, you know, me thinking everyone's an idiot, right? And yeah. realizing that, you know, yeah, I was mad at my father for the way I was raised. I was mad at, the situation, the way I got out of the military. I was mad at my wife for never understanding what I went through in Afghanistan. Like I was mad at all these people, but really the common denominator was me. And when I came to the realize, realization that the common denominator was me and, and the reason my family's going through the pain they went through, because I still obviously love them, uh, is because of me. I made the decision that I think 22 veterans every day make, and that was, that was going to take my life. I, uh, I didn't, mm. uh, I didn't want to, escape my pain so to speak it wasn't like me trying to get out of something it actually as twisted as it may sound it was almost like for me in my mind and i think in a lot of these veterans mind it's just like a noble thing like i'm gonna they're gonna be sad but they're gonna be better off and uh that was where my mindset was wow. and then uh you know i, I think about i don't want to get off subject but I, I think about heather uh this lady who comes to our program to speak to the veterans and and she's uh she her and her husband pete who's a marine uh, heard me speak at a church and gave the invite for them to come to Mighty Oaks and, uh, which is our foundation. And she's, and he said, no, I want to leave that for someone else and a spot for someone else. And, uh, six months later, he stood in the back of a pickup truck in front of a bunch of policemen and said, tell my wife, I love her and I'm doing this for her. And he shot himself. And, uh, you know, uh, I think Pete was where I was, where he thought he was doing her a favor, but you know, Heather talks about how, you know, you know she she's not better off. How she wakes up in the middle of the night and meets her husband, he's not there, and how his mother will never be the same, and and how uh, you know how much pain was left behind. And she says uh, she says something that really sticks out to me. That she says that when Pete killed himself, he didn't get rid of his pain. He just transferred it to everyone that he loved. And uh, you know, I uh, mm. you know, that's where I was, and uh, I'm sitting in my closet. I have my pistol, and uh, and uh, I know what a gun could do, and and, uh, and, um, and so it's, it's like, just feels like that's the solution. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm tr one trying to build up the courage. And, and this happened for probably over a two week period that I was battling with this and, uh, I just sit in my closet. But the one thing that kept me from doing it was that I knew my kids would be the one that would come and find me. And I didn't want my kids to find me that way. And I didn't want them to leave that legacy for them. I actually heard a statistic that one in three children from a parent that commit suicide or do it as well. And that was actually playing in my head. I don't know where I even heard that from at the time. Hmm. But I remember thinking about that. And, uh, you know, things that go through your mind and during times like that. And, and it was that time that my wife came to my apartment and she had a, she actually had divorce papers. She engaged in this conversation with me and I was being just a jerk, argumentative with her. 
And she asked me a question that, and this question just radically changed my life. Uh, it, it's while we're on the phone, you know, talk, doing this interview right now. Yeah. Well, she asked me how I could be like, um, successful in, you know, everything I've, I had done in the Marine Corps, right? To be a, she saw me become a reconnaissance Marine. She saw me train for these deployments, these crazy deployments and all the work we do. And she knew, you know, the risk we were taking and doing the job we did there. And, and then she saw me train for these MMA fights. Like, I mean, man, we train for these fights. It's, I'm a little guy and like, I cut like 30 pounds of weight. I'm training like, you know, doing, running a gauntlet with like five other pro fighters that are bigger than me, just beating up on me. You know, like, the, the amount of work and discipline it takes to do accomplish, you know, winning these fights is she's got to see all this stuff and the discipline that I had in my life to do these professional things. So she asked me how I could do all that. And when it comes to my family that I would quit. And, uh, and that question just, you know, it radically impacted me. I mean, be called a quitter is something that that resonate well with me. And, uh, but she was right. I quit on the most important things in my life, being a, being a husband, being a father, being a young 17 year old kid that the Marine Corps gave a second chance to, to do something important with his life, quit on my own health. And it was time for me to, to turn things around. And I made a decision at that point that was going to, it had nothing to do with God at the time, but uh, a couple of things I knew is that one, I couldn't do it alone. And, and two, I couldn't do it with the people that I had my, around me in my life at the time. And uh, so I asked my wife if there was someone at her church she was going to that could, a man that could help me, you know, um, walk through this and hold me accountable to this decision. And that's uh, introduced, uh, you know, got him Steve Toth into my life. And um, I met with Steve. He was an elder at our church. I met with him at Starbucks. And I had literally written a plan on paper of how I was going to fix my life. <laughs> and I slid it over to him and I, and I, and I, t- and I told him. It was it was like a military style, like five paragraph order, and and he, he he, you know, I was extremely manipulative at the time, and so I would have said all the right things, and uh, he didn't even look at it. He slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail, and I was like so offended because I'm like, why do you even meet? Like you don't even know me. I put all this work into this, and you're telling me I'm going to fail. And he said, well, if it doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, um, you can end up right back where you are, and I'm not going to let you waste my time, and I'm not going to waste yours. And um, you know, we have something we say to the warriors we work with now. Uh, a little saying is, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Mm. And uh, and that was exactly where I was. I had tried everything. I tried the pills. I tried the counseling. I tried jujitsu and MMA. Where those things are great, but they didn't change my situation. It was time for me to try something different. And so I proceeded to just trust this man, Steve, even though I didn't know him, and uh, step into a really authentic relationship with Christ. And he mentored me for a full year in uh, in biblical manhood. And uh, what I discovered along that journey was um was that the incidents of our past don't really don't really lead us to the situations where, where we are right the, the our darkest moments the, the things that happen in Afghanistan or or our childhood and those things don't lead us to where we are it's the choices that we make and we never lose control of that and that and I never lost control of that I had the ability to choose differently and I was able to actually let go of my past and and move forward into a different future but based on the choices I would make and this mentorship through um, him really teaching me how to be the man that God created me to be really gave me a set of choices moving forward that I never had before and understanding how I was supposed to you know conduct my life as a as a as a Christian and, and understand that men of God that confusion I had in Afghanistan that men of God aren't weak in fact there's nothing more that's more bold and courageous and masculine in this world than a man of God who's willing to stand up to the to the hard things and the evil of this world. And when I just got a hold of that and discovered that, it changed everything for me. And well, uh, you say it changed everything. So let's go back to your marriage and the relationship with your kids. Back together. How are the pieces put back together, or were they put back together? They, they were, and and, and it, the way it changed it for me was, you know, did I still get mad? Did my wife and kids still see me get mad? They saw me get mad. They saw me respond differently because I was responding the way you know, God intended me for, to respond. And uh, did, they, did I have moments of anxiety? You know, I still did, but I responded differently. So over time, they got to see me actually live out these behaviors, and the trust was rebuilt, and the relationships were restored. And then there was a, a hope kind of embedded in, in, uh, in our entire family for a, for a different future. And, um, and, and so that really it, – it didn't happen overnight. But it, it actually it actually happened in a pretty pretty quick period of time because I think we we're all hungry for it. We all wanted restoration in, in our family, and so well, again, while it didn't happen overnight, it happened pretty quickly. But it happened through a uh, you know both my wife and I uh, having a willingness to intentionally be intentional about it and, and, and implementing these biblical principles in our life. 
And, uh, you know, as we were going through this, you know, this hard, when we were going through the hard time of my life, I literally believed that I was the only one going through this, right? Like, I think a lot of people, when they're in despair, they think they're the only ones. And yes. that, that's how, that's where I was. I thought no one's marriage could be as bad as mine. No one could have these panic attacks like this. No one could feel as shameful and hopeless and uh, all these things. And, and the truth was, I wasn't the only one. I mean, look at the numbers in the military alone is, you know, 22 suicides a day and the, the crazy divorce rates. And, and so when I realized I wasn't the only one, I, I felt like uh, an obligation come over me, like, I felt like I had I was dying of cancer, and this guy Steve gave me the cure. Like I had to I had to pay it forward. I had to I had to share it with others. And so uh, when I came to that realization, that's all we've been doing since. And uh, you know why to write that book? Write a why do we start Mighty Oaks Foundation and do the work we do at Mighty Oaks Foundation? It's it's been a complete effort to just pay it forward and share the lessons that I've learned. Uh, not to talk about the problem, but to kind of point people to the solution. You mentioned that 22 soldiers, warriors a day are ending their life. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah the last the last uh, VA report, and it, it, the last VA report says uh, over 20 a day. Uh, the number that's kind of publicly thrown around is 22. Right. Uh, we know it to be a lot more than 20 a day because not all the states report uh, letter and suicides. Uh, but the, the current the current VA publication is 20 a day. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's a giant problem. So help, I mean, help I mean, us help us understand, you know, what you're doing or, or what's what's happening to help combat this. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I think I think there's a lot of great organizations out there. We have been uh, we started in 2011, uh, paying forward uh, what what you know, Kathy, the challenge Kathy gave me, and the mentorship Steve gave me through Mighty Oaks. We've had um, we've reached hundreds of thousands. Uh, on active duty basis doing spiritual resiliency conferences and things like that. But our core program, which is a legacy program dealing with those who are struggling with suicide, divorce, post-traumatic stress is a week long intensive and then a, a mentorship process afterwards. And we've had 1700 graduates uh, come to that program, both active duty on military orders and, um, and veterans. And um, we have uh, out of the 1700 graduates, we've had zero suicides. Wow, and, um, that's awesome. And that's all just Christ centered uh, program. Not for Christians, for anybody. I mean, that's. I mean, we had all kind of guys that come through, but um, you know, we've had incredible results, and not just guys. I mean, we're very proud that out of 1,700, we've had zero suicides, and it's something we're really proud of. But it's not just about not killing themselves. We, many of these guys are just going off and doing uh, purposeful things again, and being productive again, and, and being the warriors and leaders that you know they were they were born to be. And uh, so we're we're super proud. By the way, we do it all for free. If any veterans are listening, uh, there's no charge at all to come to our program. We cover all the costs, including travel. How can they find out more about that? Well, at MightyOaksPrograms.org is the website. There's an application on the programs page of that site. It's a pretty easy application. Someone from our team uh, will call within uh, two to three days. And we have we run 30 of those programs a year. And uh, we run them in California, Ohio, Virginia, and Texas. And uh, we have just some amazing ranches and facilities that we bring them to. And it's uh, no counseling. It's not clinical. It's peer-to-peer, warrior-to-warrior mentorship. And um, and it's not it's not a program about uh, enabling the guys and thanking them for their service, which we're th- we're super thankful for their service. It's it's about coming and being challenged and being challenged to rise up from those dark moments in, in their lives and, and uh, live a life of purpose again and uh, be productive again. We, we, know, we believe in our warriors and know they could they, they could do it. Well, we're thankful for your service as well, Chad. And I guess we're running this right around Veterans Day uh, 2017. So I guess I'll ask you, what is that day or what is the word veteran? What does that mean to you? Because, you know, in the time that you were serving, you weren't with Christ and now you are. So I wonder how you view that now uh, versus maybe the way you would have viewed it back then. I think... Overall, my overall exposure, I feel, I feel like in my, you know, I'm I'm not a young guy anymore. I'm 40, 42, mm-hmm. but uh, I've got to do a lot in, in in my 42 years, and I feel like I have a lot of exposure to the world. And I think as a, as an American American culture, we really miss how special it is to be in this country and the freedoms to, you know, if we choose to, to be able to go to church and worship on on a Sunday morning, worship, you know, worship our God. And and uh, so as a Christian, I, I just I so much more appreciate these freedoms and you know we we're part america's part of only 25 percent of the world that doesn't live under religious oppression and so we're we're a small majority of the world that that gets the, the benefit of that and the only way we would have that if it was for the young brave men and women particularly these post 9 11 
you know, kids that are signing up. It's incredible to me that they would, you know, sign up knowing they're probably going to deploy. Yeah. Um, you know, when I joined, I didn't, I didn't even think about that. I just joined in the military. I'm not thinking about going to Afghanistan or Iraq. And these kids, they are joining knowing that. And so I'm just so, so grateful, um, for our veterans to know that they would, uh, sign up to preserve those, those freedoms for us. And, uh, and that we live in a country where, where we do have those freedoms. Last question. And, and again, thank you, Chad, for sharing your story, for being so open and transparent to everything uh, and with everything that you've gone through, which is just incredible. Uh, I, it's going to be taking me some time to process all that we just talked about. But we ask this to all of our guests here on the podcast, and we talk to many athletes and, and different people who are in you know professional baseball and football. I'm just curious for you as a guy who you know tasted MMA and then went through everything else that you've went through and then eventually come into the saving grace of Jesus Christ into your life. What has the Lord been teaching you now during this time? Not what you've learned over the years, but right now, what are you, what are you learning from Jesus? You know, uh, I think, I think I'm, I'm learning, uh, you know, patience. Um, I'm not a very patient person. Uh, if there's something I want, I want it right now. And I'm going to, you know, run through a brick wall to get it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at, at this point I'm at right now is, is learning to, have to have the patience to let go and, and, and really trust, trust God and, uh, in anything and everything. It's easy to say to trust God and the, and the hard things, the things that we feel like we don't have control of. But, you know, trust God in the things that I feel like I do have control of. Uh, I tell you, as an athlete, I, I was never scared. Um, I know a lot of people have a lot of anxiety of fighting MMA. I was never scared of getting punched or getting kicked with a, you know, shin across the face. Those thoughts of fear like never came to me. But I would have an overwhelming and tremendous anxiety about losing. I didn't want to lose. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I love winning, but the, the emotion of winning is nothing to the, the fear of, of like losing. I was so scared to lose. And, and since I, you know, since I gave my life to Christ, I, I competed twice. I competed, uh, in Legacy and then I did a NBC's World Series of Fighting. And, uh, and that was my last two fights, two, two great wins. But the difference of having that pressure saying, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to compete my hardest. I'm going to try to you know, take this guy out with with every bit of, you know, every bit of ability I have. But win or lose, you know, to, to take that pressure off of, of winning and losing and put it in God's hands. It was just, I just enjoyed it so much more as an athlete to be able to compete that way with that mindset. Mm. And, and, and it's the same goes in life, you know. You know, maybe outside the cage, just the, the fights of life and the hardships of life. We could relinquish God and know God's in control and that we, no matter where we end up, if we're in God's will, we're always going to land in the right place, regardless of what it looks like. Amen. And I'm just going to read this from page 164 of Chad's latest book, An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle. It says, I have found no greater standard of courage than Jesus Christ at Calvary when he faced crucifixion. And I just think that is a wonderful picture of courage. And certainly Chad, your life is a wonderful picture of courage as well. And we thank you so much for, for being here on the podcast. How can people get in touch with you through Twitter, through Instagram, through all the books that you have going on? How can people stay in touch with you, Chad? Well, uh, my Twitter is at Chad Robo. And, um, and then, uh, our website, mightyoaksprograms.org as always has, um, you know, all the latest things that we're doing as well, as well as, uh, Mighty Oaks, uh, Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs, our Facebook, and we keep uh, everyone up to date there as well. And can people get in touch with you on the Mighty Oaks website if they wanted to bring you in as a speaker or have you share yes. their story to their congregation as well? Yes, we uh, on, on our on our Mighty Oaks programs website, we have all the information to contact us and uh, get us on uh, get, get me to, to speak or to uh, talk on a program like this. Awesome. Well, listen, yeah. it has been an honor. Um, and again, thank you for your service. I truly mean that when I say that. And uh, and thank you for your courage to to not just walk through what you walk through, which is courageous, but to be open enough to share it and pay it forward and help somebody else. So Chad Robichaud, thank you so much for being here and, uh, and God bless you, my friend. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. And we do thank Chad Robichaud for joining us here and sharing his powerful story on the Sports Spectrum podcast. And again, I'll say it again, I, I, Chad, thank you for your service to all the people in law enforcement, to all the people who are in our military, uh, all our veterans as, as Veterans Day is here. I just say thank you from the bottom of my heart for serving uh, and protecting our freedoms, protecting our rights, and sacrificing for this amazing and awesome country that we live in here in the United States 
of America. And Chad, uh, his story, again, is, is documented in the book, An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle. It is worth your time. Pick up that book. It's at anunfairadvantagebook.com, anunfairadvantagebook.com. And you can follow Chad on Twitter at Chad Robo, C-H-A-D-R-O-B-O. And check out his story and just let him know you heard his interview on the podcast. Maybe wish him well uh, if you're hearing this Veterans Day weekend. And uh, and thank him and, and all the military that you come across, whether it's through social media or whether you have somebody in your family that uh, was in the military or is in the military. Thank them for their service. Uh, I know I will. Uh, and I'm thankful for the people in my family who have fought and uh, and you know protected our rights and our freedoms and being a member of the military. And uh, I do thank you. I, I, we thank you for being a part of the podcast, for checking in with us, uh, listening. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. You can tweet at us at sports underscore spectrum, or you can tweet directly to me at Jason Romano. You can email me with any guest ideas, any thoughts, any comments, jason at sportspectrum.com, jason at sportspectrum.com. And as always, leave a review if you find this podcast helpful or if you want to share it with others, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, and uh, let us know what you think. Uh, the reviews help and they bring more awareness to this podcast and have it heard by as many people as possible. So we do thank you. And we're approaching 100,000 downloads on this podcast, which is an incredible number, uh, considering we've only been on for about seven months and 100,000 of you have listened to this podcast and heard the name of Jesus glorified through the lens of sports and we just thank you for that. We thank you so much, and uh, we're grateful. We really are. We're grateful for you just checking us out and being a partner with us here at Sports Spectrum. Have a great rest of your day, and we will see you next time right here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. <laughs>